I'm Johnny B. Good, the host of the podcast Creating a Con, the story of Bitcoin. This podcast dives deep into the story of Ray Trapani and his company Centratech. I'll explore how 320-somethings built a company out of lies, deceit, and greed. I've been saying since a very young age that I was going to be a millionaire. If someone's like, oh, what's your best way of making money? I'm like, oh, we should start some sort of scheme. Listen to Creating a Con, the story of Bitcoin, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I am the ferryman. In the shadows of the afterlife, the ferryman of souls guides America's most influential spirits to their eternal rest. Where are you taking me? Are you death? This road is not on any map. How much for a ticket? All I ask for in payment is a tale. I don't know who got to Kennedy first. And the devastation those first bombs caused. I've never been to hell, but I know intimately the hymns of the damned. Binge this season of The Passage now. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Listen to the highly anticipated 100th episode of Tank and Jay Valentine's R&B Money Podcast with artist Chris Brown. Even working with you from Carrie Hilson, Adonis. Mm-hmm. Back in the day, I was 15, 14 doing that album. So like I said, I was in school like, yeah. okay, this is how you do it. This is how you make a song. There's a verse, a pre-chorus, and then a hook. I didn't know none of that. You learned I, that over a summer, bro. That's what I, it felt like. That's what it felt like. Listen to R&B Money on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Rivals is a production of iHeartRadio. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Rivals, the show about music beefs and feuds and long-simmering resentments between musicians. I'm Steve. And I'm Jordan. And, you know, it's funny how nostalgia warps your perception and musical taste on things, because I absolutely used to despise the band we're about to talk about today. I thought they were crude and kind of like a joke band, like the audio equivalent of Jackass or something. But now... I kind of really love them. I have nothing but warm feelings about them. Yeah, I feel the same way. Uh, and we're talking about Blink-182. And this is another episode about a rivalry within a band. We're going to be talking about the creative struggles that occurred between Mark Hoppus and Tom DeLong. It's interesting to me because I feel like when this band was really big, you know, roughly from like, say, 1999 to 2003 or so, I couldn't stand them. I thought they were obnoxious. And I think that had a lot to do with my age at the time. And we'll get into this in the episode. I mean, music changed a lot from, like, say, the early 90s to the late 90s. And I think Blink-182 really personifies that. But I agree with you. I have come to really enjoy this band's, like, classic hits. I mean, they they just seem like great pop songs to me. Um, but I think, you know, the, the transition that you and I have taken with this band I feel like the same struggles have occurred within the band. It seems like the the core conflict between Mark and Tom was about the very idea of like how to grow old in this very childish band. You know, <laughs> it seemed like that's something that they couldn't really reconcile, especially Tom. Um, and it just created all sorts of problems. Just really, I mean, considering that, like at least how I got to know the band was "What's My Age Again." It just seems to be the soundtrack to their whole feud. <laughs> <laughs> yes, middle-aged men. Talking about fucking dogs. That's what this band is, basically, <laughs> at this point. Uh, but let's talk about how they got to that point. Let's get into this mess. Well, our story begins like so many classic tales of rock legend with uh, Tom DeLonge getting drunk at a high school basketball game. Ah. In 1992, he was in high school. And uh, for this offense, he was expelled from his high school, I guess suspended for a semester. And so he had to go to a different high school where he eventually connected with uh, a guy whose sister was dating Mark Hoppus. And that's how he and Mark first met. And Can I just I say guess- quick that this sounds like a Blink-182 song already? <laughs> You're right. Like their origin story could have been written and put on Enema of the State. I mean, their whole story sounds like a PG-13 American graffiti to me. It just seems <laughs> like, you know, eating donuts on the beach and like running naked through malls and stuff. You're totally right. <laughs> but they, they, Mark and Tom first became close because they bonded over um, the big love of the Descendants band. And they started jamming in Tom's parents' garage with classmate Scott Rayner on drums. And they wrote some early songs in those days. I think the song Carousel came out of those sessions. 
And, and these songs were really steeped in sort of the West Coast punk tradition, which, you know, as I said earlier, Tom would later say East Coast had kind of like New York was gloomy and dark and cold and it makes a different kind of music. But, and this is his quote now, the California middle-class suburbs have nothing to be that bummed about. So their music kind of reflected that. Yeah, and I just want to do a quick shout out to our previous episode on uh, Brian Wilson and Mike Love of the Beach Boys. Because in that episode, I argued that Mike Love invented the pop punk voice. And I think you can draw a pretty direct line from the early Beach Boys songs to the early Blink-182 songs. Uh, to me, they have a similar vibe to them. As you said, it's sort of like a PG-13 version of that. But, you know, I, I just think of that song, um, I Miss You. Do you know that song? <laughs> oh, like, Please say I'm, spiders like Tom DeLonge, please. <laughs> I'm sorry. You know, just that the voice. Webs. It's, it's like Mike Love on webs into having like eight syllables in the word webs. <laughs> it's, it's crazy. And like, you know, his voice, I have to say, was... Really difficult for me, I think, when I first heard this band. And uh, I think I came around to at least tolerating his voice. But it is, I think, the most abrasive part of this band in a lot of ways. But we'll, we'll get into that later. Oh, it seemed intentional. It seemed like, who's the little bastard kid from A Christmas Story? Like Scott Farkas or something? Where he just like taunts <laughs> the kid. It, to me, it sounded like that kid singing. I didn't know what they looked like when I first heard their music. And I thought it was just, I pictured... That redhead kid who looked as the bully singing all these songs. So that maybe is why I had a bad impression of him at first. And just to bring it full circle, I feel like it's fair to say that Mike Love is the Scott Farkas of rock and roll. So, <laughs> you know, I think the Farkas comparison is totally apt. <laughs> well, <laughs> I don't think that sentence has ever been said before. I'm glad that we just broke the, uh, the Farkas-Mike Love barrier here. We're making history here. <laughs> right. So they called themselves Blink during this early time, and they, they were practicing and writing. They were basically a garage band, and um, they hit a speed bump early on. Mark Hoppus's girlfriend resented the amount of time that he was spending with the band and gave him that you know time-honored ultimatum that girlfriends give their, their musician boyfriends, which is me or the music. And Mark quit for a few weeks, but then he couldn't stay away, so he ultimately returned to the music. And that's more important for later. We'll get back to that. So... The band started booking shows at like Elks Lodges and YMCA centers. And I, the way they got around this was Tom would call and say like, oh, yeah, we're, we're this like motivational band with like a really strong anti-drug message. And so they would like get to play like high school cafeterias and stuff like that. And of course, then they would play future Blink songs and teachers were probably horrified. Uh, they made some demos before signing to a local punk label, Cargo Records, and they released their debut album, Cheshire Cat, in 1995. And the problem was they were still called Blink then, and Cheshire Cat did well enough to attract the attention of another band called Blink, an Irish band. So they had to change their name, and they just picked 182 at random and just kind of tack on the end there. So they're now officially Blink-182, and they're starting to really gather a full seam of buzz by the time they get on the Warp Tour in 1996. And I feel like the Warp Tour, to me, it's such a quintessentially 90s festival. I mean, I know it continued on after that. And it was a big deal in the aughts as well. But did you ever go to the Warp Tour? No, I never did. I mean, I I just think of Blink-182 as like a defining band of that tour. Just this sort of, yeah, like a, they're a pop punk band. Yeah, they're singing about things that are very interesting to people between the ages of, say, like 11 and 17. Um you know, a lot of like dick jokes and, uh, you know, kids wearing band shoes and all that kind of stuff. And it really catapulted a lot of bands to start them. And I think Blink-182 is, is one of the great early examples of that. Uh, they really become a big band. And this is when I first heard about them with their album Dude Ranch in 1997, which has a, a breakout song called Damn It, which I think is still like one of the best. Blink-182 songs. That, that, that's one of my favorites. Where does that fit in the Blink-182 canon for you? I think that's probably... My come-to-Jesus moment for Blink-182 was when I was in a, a band in high school. I was like 15 in 2002, 2003. And we, of course, none of us had any talent, so we didn't write anything. But So we'd play Blink-182 songs. And Damn It was the one that got the biggest audience response. So yeah, that's kind of when I started developing a real soft spot for them. The other thing about Damn It, too, is that that's a song I associate with American Pie. And that's like oh, another yeah. thing. It's like it's like the double shot of Warp Tour and American Pie. I feel like was huge for Blink One Eighty Two, and Damn It is like a connective thread maybe between those two things. Um, 
I feel like the late nineties were just a time for like gratuitous nudity for comedic purposes. You've got the, you've got what's my age again video. You've got American pie. You've got jackass. Like I feel right. like my main memory of the late nineties was people laughing at naked people on TV. Yeah, it's like naked white guys showing their asses for laughs. Like, like the that Rolling was Stones the- cover, to Rolling Stone cover with uh, Red Hot Chili Peppers too. Am I forget? No, I'm thinking of, of the Woodstock '99 show, right? With the right. socks. Right. No, that wasn't. Yeah, that was. Yeah, that was '99 with the socks. Yeah, it. Yeah, it really was the glory days for that for that kind of entertainment. And <laughs> you know, Blink One Eighty Two. I mean, they really become who they are with the addition of of Travis Barker on drums, like their original drummer. Uh, this dude named Scott Rayner, he was kicked out of the band because he was drinking too much, um, which is also the reason why Stephen Adler was kicked out of Guns N' Roses. Like drummers can't drink a whole lot because you got to keep time, I guess. That's so you get the boot if you drink too much. So, but Travis Barker comes in and they become sort of the classic lineup of Blink-182. And in 1999, they put out Enema of the State. And that just has a bunch of hit songs. What's My Age Again? All the Small Things. Adam Song. That sells like 15 million records. And like that, Blink-182 is like one of the biggest rock bands in the world. Um, and I alluded to this earlier. And I don't know if this is different for you because you're you're younger than me. But I think my problem with Blink-182 at the time, along with the fact that they were like so big, is that they just seemed like the antithesis of like the alternative rock that I loved from the early 90s. Like, this is like a pretty... Uh, this might not be a fair comparison to make, but like, I think about the defining power trio of the early nineties is Nirvana, you know, very serious band, angsty band, a band that you would, you know, be apt to call the voice of a generation. And then the defining power trio of the late nineties is blink 182, you know, who again are doing dick jokes. They're running around naked with porn stars in their videos. It just seemed like bestiality references. BCLD references. It feels like if you're going to make a reductive comparison to spotlight how maybe vapid the late 90s were, that that was something you would go to. Again, I have over time come to appreciate Blink-182, but that is how I felt in the moment when they really became this huge rock band. Uh, does that square with how you feel? Or did you, I mean, you were playing Blink-182 songs with your band at the time. So like, did you have a different feeling? That was, a, that was a little later. When I when Enema of the State came out, I was probably 10 or 11. So that was sort of my first, like, becoming aware of what was going on musically around me. And I didn't like it. And this says more about me than about them. You know, to me, they just reminded me of those dorks at, like, the middle school lunch table who stick carrots up their nose and just, like, make walrus sounds. And it just felt like these kids had been, like, rewarded with a record label. It's just, you're a kid of a certain age, you really want, respect from your from adults and elders or at least i did and again this is probably not shocking to know that i was a real narc at that age and real you know sort of humorless and you know you want to be taken seriously and you think that adults look down on kids because we're all dumbasses and i i really wanted to to show that i was responsible and mature and all that kind of stuff and i felt bands like blink 182 were kind of giving like kids a bad name for you know just like the everything you mentioned the dick jokes and running around naked and stuff so i just thought it kind of and I'm embarrassed to admit this now because it shows just how humorless I was at that time. I, I I was just sort of clutching my pearls about the whole thing at the time when I was like 11 or 12. Yeah, I think when you look back on them, the humor and the fact that they don't take themselves seriously ages very well. Like, I, I think yeah. generally with bands, bands that are very self-serious and don't have a sense of humor, um, those are the bands that like you tend to look back on and laugh at. You know, because there's just something about people that are pretentious or stuffy. It, it, it just kind of it depreciates over time. Like the serious melts away and, it, and, the, and the pretentiousness becomes comic. Whereas comedy, in a way, maybe it becomes more profound in rock music in, in, in some strange way. Um, what's interesting, I think, about the conflict that we're going to see emerge in this band is that I think that for Tom specifically... The image of Blink-182, it seems like it started to wear on him fairly quickly. And he tried to figure out ways that he could be more of a serious person. Even as Blink-182 became more popular and going back to just being like a dumbass (laughs) was much more profitable for him. And he had to sort of figure out a balance for that uh, and, and, and maybe wasn't able to do that successfully. Totally. And that came through for the the, the follow-up to Enema of the State, 
take off your pants and jacket, which, yeah, I mean, the, the tension just drips from the title, doesn't it? Like, that's really, <laughs> uh, you know, Tom claimed that, that the label sort of rushed the band back into the studio to make a quick follow up and basically do the exact same thing again. They were being a label and they wanted more of the same because it was a huge success. And uh, Tom later claimed that he wanted to move the band forward creatively and was bummed out by the label basically saying like, give this to us now, give this to us quickly and do exactly what we did before. And he claimed that that Mark was totally happy to just do it all again. And he he was really loved to end on the state turned out and he just wanted, he was completely happy to play the label game. Whereas Tom wanted to change it up maybe go a little more mature, broaden the sonic palette a little bit. And so he, he his memories of uh, recording Tick Off Your Pants and Jacket in 2000, I think late 2000, early 2001, are not very positive. And, and is it fair to say, am I going on a limb here and in, in, in saying that like Tom is the Brian Wilson here? <laughs> that Mark is the Mike Love? The like the formula versus like let's expand? I mean, I'm making like a very limited comparison in that regard. But, uh, I mean, just hearing you talk about that, it's very Brian Wilson-esque in a way. Yeah, I mean, it seems that way. I mean, they definitely, their approach to music, because when they did their their album after that, the self-titled, or untitled one, I guess is what it is, uh, their working title for it was Our Pet Sounds. I mean, they were kind of doing that tongue-in-cheek because <laughs> they knew it was, you know, that was an impossibly grandiose thing for a band that was making dick jokes all the time to then come out with Pet Sounds. But, uh yeah, no, I think it's a it's a good comparison. And I mean, we're going to see this really come to the fore with Tom once he starts doing his own bands. Like, I'm excited to talk about Angels and Airwaves. Yeah, I feel like we have to we'll wait for later in the episode about that. But like that band, who I actually kind of like that band. Oh, absolutely. But purely for their ridiculousness. I mean, that is a totally silly band. An example of what I was talking about before, in a way of 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 someone being really self serious and trying to be profound. And it not really landing the way that he maybe would have wanted it to. It ends up being funnier than when you just commit to the dick job. Exactly. Like, fuck a dog is not as funny <laughs> as like some of those Angels and no. Airwaves albums. Oh, my God. Love part one and part two. All right, we'll get to that later. But I'm, I'm so excited to talk about that. But on, on take off uh, your pants and jacket. Is it your pants or my pants? Take off your pants and jacket. Both, <laughs> both would have been a good title, by the way. Uh, the lyrics. I mean, the creative struggle is apparent in the lyrics. It's definitely a darker record when you actually like listen to all the words. I mean, it opens with Anthem Part 2, which is just all about disenchantment and blames adults for teenage problems, which is, you know, not the most original topic in the world, but definitely goes against their whole kind of party band uh, reputation. Stay Together for the Kids is devastating. It's pretty much a verbatim true story of, of Tom's parents' divorce. Online songs, basically a breakup song, story of a lonely guy is about a, getting dumped before prom. The, yeah, it's a surprisingly dark album. I know that the the untitled album kind of gets the reputation as the mature Blink album, but but this one's got some depth to it too, I always thought. Yeah, I mean, it is interesting because I do feel like when I hear from like the true heads of the Blink-182 community that the untitled record is the one that people talk about as like the underappreciated masterwork. You know, like it's not as famous, it doesn't have as many hits as the previous, you know, three records, but like, that's the one that people really point to as being like, Oh, this is an example of like how blink 182 was able to go beyond their early sound that they could maybe find a way to grow up, uh, within the confines of, of their persona. Um, it's interesting though, that around that same time you have, uh, that Tom DeLonge band boxcar racer come about, which, I mean, am I right to say that that was basically his attempt to do Blink-182 without Mark Hoppus? You know, there's conflicting stories about how that started. He says that he had a, a really bad back problem that flared up during a, a Blink tour and he was sidelined. I forget if he had surgery or not, but he was like, he could only like stand up for like five minutes at a time and he was on all sorts of painkillers. And to just kind of like kill time while he was going through this physical anguish, he just was making, was writing acoustic songs and it wasn't really a serious musical effort, according to him. It was just something he did sort of the past the time. And then he started writing all these songs. It was basically a concept album about all the stuff that you would kind of later associate with him, like conspiracy theories, Freemasonry, Book of Revelations, World War II type stuff. It, it basically was a concept album about the end of the world. And uh, to which hear is, him, which is very him. 
Yeah, exactly. I was going to say, like, when you've reached the the point in your career where you're making concept albums about the end of the world, like, you have totally crossed the Rubicon into self-seriousness. <laughs> like, you are not in, you know, dude ranch territory anymore. Uh, it is interesting, though, listening to that record, because I revisited it, you know, getting ready for this episode. And, like, musically, it's not that far removed from what Blink-182 was doing, especially on the Untitled record. Um, I mean, I think it's a little slower. It's a little moodier. It's not as catchy or as poppy, but it's not like a radical reinvention of what they're doing. And yet, Tom ended up drafting Travis Barker into that band. And they're, you know, making this record that, again, sounds a lot like Blink-182. And it seems like that was the beginning of there being a real split between him and Mark, right? I mean, because it seems like, you know, again, I could understand Mark's perspective that, it's like, what the hell, dude? Like, you know, you're making Blink-182 records without me. Like, what's the deal with this? For fans of our Simon and Garfunkel episode, this was the true Taylor moment. This was like the, the, the betrayal. <laughs> I mean, Tom basically said that it, 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 he didn't mean it to. It was meant to be this thing he did on his own, and it kind of snowballed. RCA heard some of the demos he was doing and liked it and offered to finance it. Uh, he was going to hire a drummer and thought, why don't I just get Travis to do it because he knows what I want. And he's, you know, I, I guess he wouldn't have to pay for a session drummer. Uh, so to hear him tell it, it, it wasn't an intentional attempt to, to snub Mark, but that's basically what it was. I mean, yeah, exactly. You reformed Blink-182 without me. Uh, and Mark, to his credit, he sang on uh, one of the tracks, I think it was Elevator. He sings backing up uh, on it. But, but Mark, apparently went to him and said, look, I, I would like to be on this. And Tom said, no, I don't want this to be a Blink-192 album. I want this to be something completely separate. So, yeah, that really sowed the seeds for all the discontent that would follow for the next 15 years. And by 2004, that's when their first hiatus happens. And the reason for this hiatus is basically the old canard about creative freedom, you know, like which is been the reason for so many bands breaking up <laughs> over the years. And although I think in this case, it's not really a canard. I mean, I think it was obviously something that was that was really coming to the fore. And again, I mean, is it being oversimplifying to define this split as like Mark Hoppus wanting to maintain the Blink-182 formula and Tom not really feeling comfortable with that and doing wanting to do other things? I mean, is that reductive? I mean, because it seems like pretty straightforward in that regard to me. It seems that way to me, too. I think there might even be a touch of the uh, Jeff Tweedy, Jay Farrar in that they've just been together so long, too. I mean, since high school. And to to keep that kind of thing together also, I'm sure that that there were elements of just old little small things that built up over the last, what, 10, 15 years, too. Uh, yeah, but it, it definitely seemed to be more of just, just really wanting very different things, which is interesting because their solo works aren't that different, I have to say. Right. And... It's interesting, too, because like when you look at like the hiatus announcement that happened, I guess it happened in 04, but then there was a formal announcement from their label Geffen in February 2005 about this indefinite hiatus. Isn't it true that like like Travis Barker and Mark Hoppus, I mean, they claimed that they weren't even aware that that was going to happen. I mean, it seemed like they were under the impression that they were going to make another Blink-182 record. And then this announcement comes down that they're no longer a band. And it just seems like that's a preview of like what's going to happen later on with their other reunions. It seems like those two guys expect to get back together. And then Tom, in some way, kind of pulls the, the carpet off from under them. My feeling, I mean, I, I absolutely agree. And it totally is a precursor to what happened, I think, almost exactly 10 years later when they're about to record another album after their reunion and Tom kind of backs away. I get the impression that it's not a malicious act on Tom's part, but he's just gets he's just a yes guy and he says yes to so many things that he just gets bogged down. And then, and we'll, we'll touch more on this later when we talk not only about Angels and Airwaves, but his, we haven't even mentioned UFOs yet. So I, mean, I know, is, I know. We got I mean, so whole, much. That's another like podcast series. I mean, yeah. I feel like, you know, we could do a whole episode on that. We could start a new podcast just talking about Tom's exploration of outer space, uh, which is an incredible offshoot of this. All right, hang on. We'll be right back with more Rivals. My name is Johnny B. Good, and I'm the host of the new podcast, Creating a Con, the story of Bitcoin. Over this nine-part series, I'll explore the life and crimes of my best friend, Ray Trapani. I always wanted to be a criminal. 
If someone's like, oh, what's your best way of making money? I'm like, oh, we should start some sort of scheme. You see, Ray has this unique ability to find loopholes and exploit them. They collected $30 million. There were headlines about it. His company, Centratech, was one of the hottest crypto startups in 2017. It was going to change the world, until it didn't. I came into my office, opened my email, and the subject heading was FBI request. It was only a matter of time before the truth came out. You can only fake it till you make it for so long before they find out that your Harvard degree is not so crimson. How could you sit there and do something that you know will objectively cause more harm in the world? Listen to Creating a Con, the story of Bitcoin, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I never thought I'd take my three young kids to Sicily to solve a century-old mystery, but that's what I'm doing in my new podcast, The Sicilian Inheritance. Join us as we travel thousands of miles on the beautiful and crazy island of Sicily as I trace my roots back through a mystery for the ages and untangle clues within my family's origin story, which has morphed like a game of telephone through the generations. Was our family matriarch killed in a land deal gone wrong? Or was it by the Sicilian Mafia? A lover's quarrel? Or was she, as my father believed, a witch? Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, and me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. Thank you for taking the light, and you're going to shine it all over the world, and it makes me really happy. I never imagined that I would get the chance to carry this honor and help be a part of this legacy. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. Let's talk about Angels and Airwaves, because we were both excited to talk about this band. This becomes the big Tom DeLonge side project, or I guess it's not even a side project. It was his post-Blink-182 project. And to me, I, I feel like, you know, he, you know he's in Blink-182, the defining pop-punk pan of, 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 their, of their time. And then he decides, I, I'd actually want to form my own version of Muse, you know, <laughs> which is what Angels and Airwaves is, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, it, it it came at a really weird time for him because after the the hiatus for Blink-182, he had what was probably a nervous breakdown. He spent like three weeks on the spiritual journey in complete isolation away from his family and everybody just contemplating his life and career and future in music. And as you said, he wanted to kind of get away from this lowbrow prankster image that he had with Blink-182. And he apparently, and I didn't realize this until researching this episode, accompanied John Kerry on the 2004 presidential campaign, which I... I would love to, I mean, if he wrote like a, a, you know, a Hunter S. Thompson style, like campaign novel, I would love to read that. It's like, um, how could John Kerry have lost? Right? How could he have lost? He had Tom, he had Tom DeLonge right there, right? Shotgun with him. And he would say later that like watching these campaigns and these speeches and all these rallies and stuff that kind of reinvigorated, that's what he wanted his band to be, like a movement, like a revolution. And he wanted his next project to basically change the world. And I'd like to stop right now and note that at this point, he was basically eating Vicodin like M&Ms this entire period because his back was really killing him. So he was giving- I was going to say, like, this is very walk hard. This yeah. whole thing. It, it's very Dewey Cox, right. like in the 60s, hanging out with the Beatles yeah. and, you know, wearing like love beads and stuff. Like, I just keep thinking of Dewey Cox. As you're talking about this. Well, he get, I mean, he doesn't really help himself with some of the press that he did for Angel Airwaves. He- he said he wanted this to be the greatest rock and roll revolution for this generation. He wanted their debut in 1995, uh, sorry, 1995, uh, 2005, We Don't Need to Whisper, to, quote, compete with the greatest rock records of all time, and it would usher in an entire new culture of the youth before conquering the globe with his tours. Um, this did not come to pass. The record was fine. Uh, I think it did yeah. gold. The tours did okay. But Tom had an answer for this. When, when, he, when asked why... Angels and Airwaves didn't usher in a new uh, youth revolution. He said that it would take about 30 years to fully take effect. And at the time, he'd only been asked, it had only been one year since the album had come out. 
Now, so, the irony of this to me is that he was already in a band that I think, again, you could say Blink-182, I think, honestly, like that late 90s, early 2000s era, they're a defining band of that time. In a way, you could say he was already in a band that changed the world. You know? yeah. It's like he was already in a massively successful band. So the idea that he didn't recognize that and felt that he had to form this sort of comically grandiose band that is very on the nose, you know, in terms of like being like wanting to be sort of like a serious revolutionary uh, type group. It just shows, again, like, yeah, maybe don't take so much Vicodin at once. Right. It, it can distort your mind. I mean, like listening to those records to me, you know, it's like he decided to, you know, to stop telling dick jokes and start contemplating like the astral plane. And shit, you know, like that's what he's doing on those records. Like, and that's a big jump from dick jokes to like, you know, contemplating the astral plane and doing like U2 and Pink Floyd levels of like, you know, tours and stuff. Yeah, that, that's a yeah, big I jump. I mean, like, I, I feel like we could probably both name our, some of our favorite song titles from that time. I mean, I'm a big fan of the moon atomic and then you have an ellipses and then it says fragments and fictions, which is an amazing song title. I'd like to make a list. Of my favorite songs that have ellipses in the title, that would probably be high on it, I'd have to say. Yeah, I don't think, yeah, and I think that they're all, I think as soon as you put an ellipses in a song, you are, you're drifting into pretentious area. Although, wait, does, does uh, Hit Me Baby One More Time have an ellipses in the title? Oh, you're right. Or, or is that the album title? I can't remember. All right. Well, Britney, there's a Britney exception, I guess, with, right. with the, the Britney clause. Do you have a favorite uh, Air, uh, Angels and Airwaves song title? Mine's like the Latin one that I'm probably going to butcher. It's like, et, et ducit mundum per luce. <laughs> I don't know if I'm saying that right, which makes it so much better for me. And that actually means fuck a dog in uh, <laughs> that language. Um, yeah, I mean, in a way, I feel like where Angels and Airwaves eventually goes wrong, like some on some of their later records, like The Dreamwalker, which I think I listened to like once or twice and then promptly forgot about. But like, he didn't push it quite far enough in terms of the grandioseness, like I think with a band like Muse, there is a sort of self-aware ridiculousness about that band that I think their detractors don't totally give them credit for, which makes their records, I think, pretty entertaining. Angels and Airwaves didn't quite go far enough. I kind of wish he just would have gone over the cliff with silly ridiculousness. But he ended up at this sort of like half measure, like, you know, second-rate killers type sound. Oh, oh, it's a little better than that. That's brutal. Did you ever get into um, the the Mark Hoppus, uh, Travis Barker side project at all? Plus 44? Yeah, I mean, they just seem more of just like an attempt to just recreate Blink-182, right? Or is that is that being too harsh? Yeah, I thought they had like more of like a synthy electro thing going a little bit. But yeah, it, it, it sort of seemed like... A, a, a revenge band, if you will. <laughs> like, what was their story? Uh, well, I guess um, Mark was living in London at the time, and so the plus forty four was the uh, was the code to dial London. And yeah, it almost seemed like Boxcar Racer in reverse. It was like, well, I guess uh, Tom's gone, so Travis, you want to want to go make some music? Um, and the album is two, I think they only made one album. Two thousand six is uh, when your heart stops beating. Kind of expressed all the negative emotions around Blink's demise. There's the, the main song on it was No It Isn't, which is, uh, it's, it's, it's a breakup song. And he gave it that title uh, because he was trying to kind of curtail questions in the press about whether or not it was about the breakup of Blink-182. So he named it No It Isn't, even though it absolutely is. Um, it's kind of, yeah, it, it's, Tom apparently said that the band started before he even quit, and he cited that as a reason why he went on hiatus with Blink. He said he found out that they were doing a side project and didn't invite him and got really hurt by it, which I thought was really weird, considering he did the exact same thing with Boxcar Racer. But uh, yeah, in any event, uh, Plus 44, nowhere near as crazy as Angels and Airwaves, and consequently nowhere near as successful. And of course, because of these side projects, and again, like Angels and Airwaves did pretty well, but not even that band really even approached what Blink-182 was doing. It seemed inevitable that these guys were going to try to get back together, which is what happened starting in about 2008. And there were a couple terrible things that happened in the Blink-182 camp. One was the death of their producer, Jerry Finn, who was the guy that they made all their huge records with, basically. 
back in the late 90s and early 2000s. And he died from a cerebral hemorrhage. I think it was like a, just like a sudden out of the blue uh, type tragedy that happened there. And then the other thing that happened, and this is insane. I don't know if people remember this, but Travis Barker was like in a plane crash. And was he flying the plane himself? Was he flying the plane himself? I don't I, I don't know if that was part of it or not. But like, I know he was in a plane crash and four people died. And he had third degree burns and he had to have like a 48 hour blood transfusion. And uh, Tom DeLonge saw this on television and he freaked out, understandably, started crying, you know, worried about his his friend and former bandmate. And I love this story. Apparently, he sent him two photos. Yeah. One was a photo of the band and one was a photo of Tom with his family. And he said, yeah, this is who we were and this is who I am now. Uh, and yeah, and, uh, you know, Travis Barker saw that and apparently was moved by it. And they end up having a band meeting, which, or they had a couple band meetings. And I, I apparently they were described by Mark Hoppus as two gnarly heart to hearts. <laughs> That's exactly how I would expect them to be described by Mark Hoppus. <laughs> exactly. And which I don't know what the extent of those conversations were. I imagine it was, hey, we can make a shit ton of money if we get back together. Why don't we do it? You know, I, not to be crass, but I feel I think like they were that, literally like at a hospital bed when these discussions were going. So yeah, maybe okay, maybe it was like a more tender version of that. But I feel like that had to be the subtext right. of of these conversations. And uh, they end up going on tour in two thousand nine with Weezer and Fallout Boy. So now Blink One Eighty Two is officially back, but of course the old problems are still in the background, and they're about to come back to the fore. They start recording this reunion album called Neighborhoods, and you could barely call it a reunion album because it was mostly done through email. Apparently, like, oh, they were man. so all busy with, like, outside projects and family commitments that, like, Tom stayed in San Diego, uh, Hoppus and Barker were down in L.A. They would go months without direct communication. They were only speaking through managers, I think. And I don't think it was, it was necessarily in a mean way. It's just people were doing other stuff and this seemed like it really wasn't given a priority. They didn't even have a single producer. Every All three of them had their own like sound guy that acted as like a producer for those tracks, and they would just uh, kind of email. Yeah. yeah. That's not a good sign. I mean, I feel like that was a mini trend at that time. Like, The Strokes made a record like that, too, called Angles, that came out in 2011, where I think, like, four-fifths of the band were together, and then Julian Casablancas was, like, in some sequestered bunker somewhere, <laughs> sending emails about the record. And I actually happen to love Angles. I think that's a really great record. But a lot of people didn't like that record and it didn't do terribly well. Um, don't make a record over email. I, d I just don't feel like that is usually the best way for a band to work. Yeah, unless you're the postal service, like, just please. Yeah. Be, be in a room at least for, like, half of it. Which Yeah. And they were, unless, and like also, the, I mean, if the concept of your band is that you are sending music through the mail, then I think it works. You know, <laughs> like, postal service, that was their thing. But, you know, if you're a band that is accustomed to being in the same room together, perhaps it's not the best way to go. And it just bums me out, too, because, you know, you have this incredible, like, after-school special-style reunion of, like, oh, my God, this guy almost died. Let's 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 put aside all our differences and be friends again. Like, it could have been great. I don't really—it's it, so sad that this was the way it went down with everybody being so isolated, making this album that really didn't hang together. And I, the, uh, I think Tom later said that just there was constant interference from— there were four separate managers. Each one had their own manager and then a band manager— PR people, attorneys, and what Tom called bureaucratic diarrhea just made the bad, <laughs> just made the vibes even worse. And, uh, and of course, then you had all the old musical differences too, where you had Tom still wanting to be a little more progressive, whereas Travis and Mark thought it was basically being pretentious and trying to, they thought Tom was trying to turn the band into Coldplay and they wanted to do stuff like they were known for. So um, it got really bad when uh, there were production delays on the album and the, and Travis wanted to cancel a tour because he thought, you know, I don't really want to go out and tour with just the old songs again. We owe new songs for the the, uh, the fans. And also, he later described himself in this period as being a bloody mess. Literally, not, not in the English sense, but like a literal bloody mess. He's barely recovered from this horrific plane crash that he had third degree burns over like three quarters of his body. So he really wasn't in any shape to be doing all this anyway. So, uh, so yeah, the vibes were really bad and the lyrics really reflect this. Just, I feel like 
I think I read a review where they said it, the album Neighborhoods was basically an exorcism. It just was haunted by the specter of death and addiction and loss. And yeah, it, it's probably... Which is not what you want from a Blink-182 no. record. You don't want an exorcism from a Blink-182 record. I mean, again, this is the American Pie Band. Right. You want you want them to be humping pies musically, you know, none of these dark explorations of the soul. No, I mean, um, their, lead, their lead single is called Up All Night, which you think, you know, Up All Night, this is going to be like a great party anthem. And the chorus is all these demons, they keep me up at night. And you're like, oh, oh man. man, it's like, yeah, it's like going to your high school reunion and like the, the, the party animal from your high school class is now in therapy and, right. and addicted to Oxycontin or something. You know, it's <laughs> like, oh, this is this is bleak. Yeah. Uh, and it, it seems like things really came to a head, too, on, on the tour for that record. Like uh, Travis Barker, in his memoir, he wrote about how he, he thought that Tom DeLonge like, specifically sort of derailed that tour just by basically being like a greedy guy. Like in his view, he felt that Tom was only there for the money and that he didn't really come out of a shell until he started seeing like how well tickets were selling. And then he would get excited about the band. Oof. And... And it seems like moving forward that that really informs like how Hoppus and, and Barker come to look at DeLong, that they look at him as a guy who only regards the band as like a piggy bank, essentially, that he can use to like fund his own projects and to like, you know, go searching for extraterrestrials out in, in outer space. I mean, isn't that right? I mean, it seems like that becomes like the real crux of... Right. The, I mean, he, he'd here. done this before, I think, like in the 90s when it still wasn't totally sure whether or not the band was really going to be viable. He had all these other side projects going. He was like, he started a clothing company, I think called Loser Kids, and another one called Atticus, and they had Macbeth Footwear, and he had a technology and design firm and stuff. So he had all these side projects going before. So even back, probably during the height of Blink, it almost seemed like he wasn't totally committed to it. He had all these other things going just in case. Which, I mean, you know, rock and roll, you hear all these horror stories about bands being huge one minute and the next minute being totally broke. So on one hand, you can't really blame him. But yeah, he definitely seemed to be, in a weird way, I can't believe I'm saying this about him, but kind of the more pragmatic and practical from a financial sense because he diversified his interests, which frustrated his bandmates who really wanted to make this good. And yet, he's the one that seems to stop the band. It, it doesn't seem like they are, like that Hoppus and Barker are kicking him out necessarily. It seems like Tom is the one who's sort of like dragging his feet and then almost making them get rid of him. I mean, isn't that essentially what happens when they start yeah. to work on another record after Neighborhoods? Oh, it, it's such a mess. I mean, it, it's such a he said, he said, he said situation. The band wanted to record a new album, but they didn't have a record deal at the time. I think that Neighborhoods was actually self-released or I, I forget how they did it, but they didn't have a major label. Uh, so Tom wanted a deal. So before he'd work on a record, he made sure that they would get a deal. They eventually get a deal. They worked really hard and get this deal together. Then over Christmas, the other members of Blink-182 get an email from Tom's manager, not even from Tom, saying Tom is out. That's the direct quote. Tom is out. I think there are periods before each of those words. And this is really troublesome to the band because they put all this work into getting this, this deal, about to get in the studio, and they got a festival on the horizon in March. It's December. Uh, so... Really what followed is probably one of the most spectacular public dissolutions of a band in popular music history. It's just like an incredible train wreck of back and forth contradictory nonsense. Uh, it starts off with Mark and Travis in January 2015, putting out an announcement that Tom had left the band indefinitely. They said, we were all set to play this festival and record a new album, and Tom kept putting it off without reason. Uh, it's pretty much the same thing that happened 10 years earlier. And so to cover for this festival in March, they hired uh, Matt Skiba from Alkaline Trio, also known as the first act I ever saw in a non-Baby Boomer concert. Uh, <laughs> wow, it's a big milestone for you. Yeah, oh yeah, that was a big one. <laughs> so yeah, so they they put out this announcement that DeLong is out of the band, but then DeLong goes on social media and he says that he never quit the band. And I, I feel like I need to read his social media post uh, verbatim here. He says, to all the fans, I never quit the band. I actually was on a phone call about Blink-182 for New York City at the time all these weird press releases started coming in. Apparently, those releases were sanctioned, quote marks, from the band. Are we dysfunctional? Yes, but Christ. <laughs> and then he says, hashtag awkward, hashtag baby back ribs. <laughs> and then, and then, he, then he posted a photo of a man hugging a tiger with the caption, me and the band hugging. 
Uh, <laughs> Wait, let, let me just glossed over a man hugging a tiger. That's yeah, like, exactly. That's one of the least crazy things about this whole thing is, is the photos of a man hugging a tiger. So that prompts Travis and Mark to do an interview with Rolling Stone where they're like basically just throwing time under the bus and they're really airing out all the frustrations that they have with someone that they really look at as being a diva. And as we've established, I mean, there is this history of DeLong derailing whatever project Blink-182 is going to be doing. And it seems like it finally reached a boiling point. And uh, again, they kind of go back to this idea that DeLong just looks at Blink-182 as like a piggy bank that he's going to draw money from, but he doesn't really care about the band. And this has caused him to act selfishly. And there's this quote, where they say, you know, it's hard to cover for someone who's disrespectful and ungrateful. Why Blink even got back together in the first place is questionable. And then Hoppe says, it feels humiliating to be in a band where you have to be apologizing for one person all the time. That's how it has felt for a long time. Uh, so they're clearly trying to make it clear to people, uh, to their fan base, like why they had to get rid of this guy. Tom doesn't like that. Tom... <laughs> As you might imagine, he doesn't like that. He goes on Facebook and he writes an extremely long response to this interview. And he says that he was the one who really wanted to get back into the studio and the other guys were dragging their feet. And that their new label contract was this like massive 60-page deal that had all these stipulations where the album had to be done in six months, which he said just wasn't possible. And it prohibited him from working on other projects that he was contracted to do, which at this point were, he claims, co-writing 15 novels, 15 novels, all of them, I believe, have accompanying soundtrack EPs. So that's 15 EPs, four albums. This is for 2015. This is for the year 2015. Plus two Angels and Airwaves totally albums. Normal. And two solo albums. Three of which of these solo albums would have a companion novel. Uh, so yeah, he's like, sorry, I, 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 uh, I couldn't do this thing in the next six months because I'm writing 30 novels and recording 10 other albums in the next calendar year. Hey, dude. Come on. I mean, if you could have like, if you, if you had just read that Rolling Stone interview, you could have thought, well, maybe they're not giving Tom his fair shake here. Like maybe they're just being a little bitter here and, you know, we're just hearing their side of the story. So we could take their words with a grain of salt. But then he writes that Facebook post and it's like, oh yeah, he is insane. He's totally <laughs> insane. Like he has just admitted that I'm a lunatic uh, with this Facebook post. So I think that made it clear to a lot of people that, yeah, maybe these guys are justified in hiring a different, you know, a different guy to be in the band so we could so they could make another record. Oh, and the best part is Mark apparently said that Tom, when they did get back in touch, which was rare, Mark was like, yeah, why did you have your manager say you quit? And Tom said, I didn't even tell him to do that. It's so weird. <laughs> it's just like, Dude, just, just say you don't want to be in the band. It's OK if you want to do all this other stuff. Fine. I, I don't I don't have to agree with it, but fine. But just don't just be like the little kid who's got cookie crumbs all over his face being like, I didn't, I didn't eat the cookie. Yeah. It just reminds me of that, uh, that, that sketch from, I think you should leave like where the hot dog guy like <laughs> crashes his car, crashes the hot dog car into the thing. And he's like, who crashed the yeah. hot dog car? Yeah. You know? And it's like, dude, it's you're like wearing the hot dog shattering suit. everywhere. Yeah. Tom DeLong, you're wearing a hot dog suit, dude. All right. Like everyone can see it. Um, so Blink-182, they put out a record with Matt Skiba in 2016. It's called California. And it's their first number one record since Take Off Your Pants and Jacket. And I feel like the, the reception to that record was like fairly positive. I don't think it was over the moon. But I feel like that record coincided with the revisionism about Blink-182, especially among music critics, like really taking hold. Like, I think by then, the generation of 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 music writers who had grown up listening to Blink-182. You know, they were now old enough to be writing for, like, big music magazines. And I think some of the knee-jerk uh, dismissals of Blink-182 that occurred, like, when they were first popular, you know, those were put to the side. And, and I think there were people willing to take them more seriously. And... Uh, it's like a New York Times profile around that time, right? New York Times profile. I, it, yeah, and I feel like just, like, in general, like, in the blogosphere... If I could still use the term blogosphere, I, I, I'm I, I'm a person from 2010 right now uh, talking. But anyway, I feel like there was much more warmth and and uh, consideration given to Blink-182's music at this time, and I think it really signaled them essentially becoming a classic rock act mm. uh, by now. Like they had that kind of history at this point, and 
like any classic rock act, it really showed that like they were at a point in their career like where they could still tour and play huge venues even if like their latest records weren't you know producing tons of hit songs like they had enough of a legacy now where they could still be really big and 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 it showed that even without DeLong being in the band that they could do that and 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 still be a pretty big rock band yeah I mean it's just so funny how like just if you endure long enough you can reach this point of revisionism it's it's definitely fascinating I I, but I saw more written about the band than about the actual music on that album though like I think I listened to it maybe once when it came out and I don't remember anything about it yeah, I think that album was like a peg for think pieces about the band where people could, <laughs> you know, could talk about like how they loved Blink-182 yeah. a long time ago. Um, but meanwhile, all the, while all this is happening and Blink-182 is continuing to be successful, Tom is out there. And this is an incredible thing. And, I, and I'm saying this somewhat facetiously, but it, it also seems like it's true that he's like proving the existence of UFOs. Oh, yeah. I interviewed him last year about this and it was probably one of the most unforgettable interviews of my life. He is just, it's, he totally has, I'm so all for everything that he's doing. You know, I just think it's, it's such a, I mean, he's definitely out there, but he's assembled this incredible group of uh, really well-established names from the intelligence community, former uh, members of the Lockheed Martin Skunk Works uh, experimental aircraft program. He's got a really fascinating team. And, you know, people have been laughing at him. I mean, he's, he's I think he was a 9-11 truther and he would, on tour buses for Blink, uh, Blink tours, he would like stare out the window and look for UFOs and organize search parties to try to find Bigfoot and stuff. Like he's been doing, he's been at this for a while. And, you know, the whole Aliens Exist song, like you're tempted to write it off as a joke, but the work that he does is really fascinating. His He's founded a... Um, I don't even know what you'd call it, an academy of arts and sciences called To the Stars. And um, and they are, I, I'm still confused about what it is. Uh, it's basically uh, a research organization. And they they published um, videos from taken from uh, Air Force cameras, cameras that are mounted on the front of, of fighter jets. And the most famous one was from the uh, 2004 USS Nimitz incident, which is off the coast of California, when... Uh, a series of fighter pilots recorded on camera and saw visually these strange, it looked like a, a big floating white tic-tac that moved in really erratic ways that just defy the laws of physics. And there's documented evidence of it in the air, on radar, I believe. It's this whole story. Uh, and he released these videos that people thought, well, that's weird. Is it real? And then I think just in May, the uh, Air Force uh, or the government, some very major agency, confirmed that it was, in fact, legit video and that they are UFOs. And he, the government had a program, it was a black budget program called ATIP, um, which was to study aerial threats that were un- of unknown origin. And uh, they hired, his name was Luis Elizondo, to work with him on, uh, on studying these programs, uh, on study- studying these aircraft that... Uh, no one knows what they are. They're documented, but they're they're literally UFOs. They're not saying going as far as saying that they're aliens, but yeah, the government doesn't know what they are. And I just want to say that like this just shows like how insane our world is right now. That like the fact that a member of Blink One Eighty Two has helped to confirm the existence of UFOs is like not that big of a deal. Like people, <laughs> there's like so much other craziness in the world right now where people are like, oh, oh, the guy uh, who ran naked in the What's My Age Again video, like, oh, he discovered UFOs. Oh great. Okay, great. Yeah. Uh, what's the next thing? You know, like we're just so uh, we're so uh, you know desensitized to incredible things happening that that's not that big of a deal. I know for me, like the the thing that I know most about his organization is that they were in debt supposedly for thirty seven million dollars, which is like an incredible thing. I don't know. Is was that actually true? I mean, I know that DeLong like de- denies that. He denied that it was like straight up debt and said, I think this quote was, it's attributable attributable to stock-based compensation expense, whatever that means. He basically said it wasn't, it wasn't an operating debt. It was that, I guess he gave um, staff members like stock options in the organization and that's what that debt was. I, I okay. don't know. It, but wow. it, yeah, it sounds like uh, they had a really great History Channel miniseries last year that kind of explored the whole USS Nimitz incident. And had these high-ranking military officers come on camera, you know, they weren't obscure and they had their real names and everything, talk about what they saw and they had all the footage. And um, 
And in this time, too, the New York Times and a few other, I think the Washington Post, had all these exposés on this, this secret government project to study UFOs that has been, you know, declassified. So, yeah, it's really strange. When I talked to him about this whole project, a part of me wanted to be like, yeah, you know, the biggest liability to this whole project is kind of you, like you former right. CIA <laughs> members and stuff. Like this would seem much more believable and legit if it wasn't you as the face of it. We're going to take a quick break to get a word from our sponsor before we get to more Rivals. My name is Johnny B. Good, and I'm the host of the new podcast, Creating a Con, the story of BitCon. Over this nine-part series, I'll explore the life and crimes of my best friend, Ray Trapani. I always wanted to be a criminal. If someone's like, oh, what's your best way of making money? I'm like, oh, we should start some sort of scheme. You see, Ray has this unique ability to find loopholes and exploit them. They collected $30 million. There were headlines about it. His company, Centratech, was one of the hottest crypto startups in 2017. It was going to change the world, until it didn't. I came into my office, opened my email, and the subject heading was FBI request. It was only a matter of time before the truth came out. You can only fake it till you make it for so long before they find out that your Harvard degree is not so crimson. How could you sit there and do something that you know will objectively cause more harm in the world? Listen to Creating a Con, the story of BitCon, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I never thought I'd take my three young kids to Sicily to solve a century-old mystery, but that's what I'm doing in my new podcast, The Sicilian Inheritance. Join us as we travel thousands of miles on the beautiful and crazy island of Sicily, as I trace my roots back through a mystery for the ages and untangle clues within my family's origin story, which has morphed like a game of telephone through the generations. Was our family matriarch killed in a land deal gone wrong? Or was it by the Sicilian Mafia? A lover's quarrel? Or was she, as my father believed, a witch? Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, and me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. Thank you for taking the light, and you're going to shine it all over the world, and it makes me really happy. I never imagined that I would get the chance to carry this honor and help be a part of this legacy. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. Well... Like I said, I feel like we could do a whole series just on Tom DeLonge's explorations in the Great White Beyond. But, like, <laughs> let's get to the part of our episode where we make pro cases for each side of the rivalry. Uh, let's start with Mark Hoppus. I feel like Hoppus, he's the obvious one to side with, maybe, like, in this conflict. You know, he's the sane one. He's the one that's, like, kept the group together. Uh, he's like far less erratic than Tom. It seems like Tom is a very difficult guy to put up with. I guess in a way we should also be grouping Travis Barker in here too. Travis Barker is like a weird sort of like Switzerland in this conflict. <laughs> it seems like he goes to both guys and, you know, it seems like he's a pretty laid back dude. Um, but I mean, when Mark said in that interview with Rolling Stone that like, you know, it's hard to be the one who constantly has to apologize for someone in this band. I mean, I I, I, I I think that's a legitimate gripe, and I, and I understand where he's coming from with that. So I think just on pure, like, sort of sanity grounds, like, that is the case to make for Mark. What do you think? I also feel like, you know, if, if Tom's claims that he's going to release 15 EPs and four albums or whatever in one year are any indication, he's a hard guy that's, he has a hard time focusing on one thing. So I'd probably credit Mark and Travis, too, for being responsible for Blink being as prolific as they were at the time, too. I feel like he 
gave some structure and, 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 and put some blinders on Tom in a way that Tom probably resented and felt like it limited him, but it probably made it so that they could actually produce the things that he was talking about. Otherwise, it'd just be, you know, I, I just see him like kind of in a studio with one of those old synthesizers with all the patch cores, just trying to <laughs> figure out how to get one sound for six months at a time, like Dewey Cox style. Exactly. Well, whereas I think on the flip side, if you're going to talk about the pro side with, with DeLong, is that he is the one who probably made those records more interesting than they would have been otherwise. Like there's, there were lots of pop punk bands of that time, and we forgot about most of them. But I think one of the reasons that we remember Blink-182, along with all of their great pop hits that they had, was that they did, I think, manage to progress beyond their initial formula and still be Blink-182, but be maybe a more interesting version of Blink-182 as they got a little bit older. And I feel like that's probably mostly attributable to Tom. I think ultimately with Tom, like all the negatives that exist with him are also his positives in a way, like his difficulty and like just his, uh, you know, this sort of self-destructive urge to constantly push beyond what they were successful at. Um, I don't know. I mean, I feel like in retrospect, I mean, it, it looks pretty good, you know, as, as maddening as, as it must have been to deal with it on a one-to-one level. Yeah, it's the same reason that I love Billy Corgan, even though I know he can be infuriating. It's, you know, Tom, maybe he's manic. Maybe he's brilliant. Maybe he's just easily bored. I'm not going to speculate. But like, the, we always have that one friend who just kind of overcommits and will look you dead in the eye and say, yes, I will be there. I will be at your party. I will be at your show. And they know that they're not going to make it. They just just totally overcommit. And I feel like that's Tom. He just has this like hyperkinetic personality that keeps him bouncing around from subject to subject to project to project. And that brings a whole lot of great, interesting, weird energy to Blink-182, but also is infuriating. And it's really hard. It's like capturing lightning bugs. It's just like you can't actually get them there. And I feel like that's what Mark did was by harnessing that. But a lot of the, the energy, like you said, that made it different and more unique and separated it from a lot of the other pop punk bands of the era are attributable to Tom. And yeah, and I, I mean, I just love anyone that's like, yeah, I'm, I don't care how insane I look and how crazy I look. I really believe in this thing and I'm going to commit to it with all my heart and be a super passionate. It's like, it's like a little kid with dinosaurs or something, you know, it's like, yeah, like you love your thing and go, go for it, man. I just, yeah, I, I all respect to all the UFO stuff that he does. I think it's really fascinating. I think he's done good work with that. Um, I know it's probably infuriating to fans of Blink-182, but I, I'm really fascinated by him. I, I think ultimately, like when we talk about these two guys being together, even though, even though Blink-182 has been able to put out records and, and to tour uh, without DeLong, I don't think there's any question that like the brand is worth more with him in the band than him being out of the band. And uh, you know, I just go back to that thing we talked about at the beginning of the episode, this tension between what Blink-182's identity is, especially in their glory years, and what people want from them when they go see this band now. You know, They want to hear the hits and they want to sort of re-experience a version of that band that they loved when they were kids. Just the tension that creates when you're no longer in your 20s, that you're now a middle-aged man and you have to sing these songs. I mean, it does remind me a lot, like I said before, of the Beach Boys. You know, I think there's a similar tension with, with that group where, you know, you have these classic rock bands. And again, I think Blink-182 is now a classic rock band built on a foundation of sort of youthful uh, fun and frivolity and, you know, just being young and stupid. And then having to convey that when you get older and, and just the burden of that but also the profitability of that. Because you know? I think, again, like this is going to be a band that I, I bet Blink-182 will be one of those bands that can tour on their back catalog for a really long time. I really think that they had that kind of impact on people who were young uh, when those records were big. And I think it's interesting that, like, I mean, I feel like neither one of those guys totally counts out the possibility of a reunion Right? I mean, it seems like they both kind of leave the door open. Oh, yeah. Mark, I think, said in an interview recently, he was like, yeah, never say never. I think they both have said that. I mean, it, Tom is usually saying, oh, I'm busy with all this other stuff, but I love those guys. But Mark has been a bit more forward about like, yeah, sure, I'll, I'll do it. And I, it's just so weird because I, I grew up listening to, to classic rock stuff primarily and didn't really engage with the radio too much. And so 
music that I loved as a kid always, nostalgia seemed to go hand in hand with music because that was the stuff I loved. I listened to Simon and Garfunkel when I was 10, 11, 12. And so it's strange now that this music that I felt no real emotion towards when it came out uh, is now imbued with all this nostalgia. And I think of, you know, like you said, that Blink-182 is now going to be like almost like a boomer touring act in a funny way. And I think of my dad always sings the Neil Young song, Sugar Mountain. For him, that's like his, his, his boomers getting older song of choice. And he always changes the line, you can't be 20 on Sugar Mountain to whatever, to whatever decade he's staring down. Now he's at, you know, you can't be 70 on Sugar Mountain. And I'm just looking forward to like aging millennials singing, no one likes you when you're 53. <laughs> It'll happen sooner than you think. That's what I'm told. I think that's true for everybody. Well, uh, you know, hopefully... Mark and Tom can find a way to stay together for the kids. There he goes, waiting for that. <laughs> this entire episode was a giant setup for a stay together for the kids <laughs> joke. <laughs> and on that note, I think it's time for us to send off. So thank you, everybody, for listening to this episode of Rivals. We'll be back with more beefs and feuds next week. Rivals is a production of iHeartRadio. The executive producers are Sean Titone and Noel Brown. The supervising producers are Taylor Shacoin and Tristan McNeil. I'm Jordan Runtog. And I'm Stephen Hyden. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and leave us a review. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. I'm Johnny B. Good, the host of the podcast Creating a Con, the story of BitCon. This podcast dives deep into the story of Ray Trapani and his company, Centratech. I'll explore how 320-somethings built a company out of lies, deceit, and greed. I've been saying since a very young age that I was going to be a millionaire. If someone's like, oh, what's your best way of making money? I'm like, oh, we should start some sort of scheme. Listen to Creating a Con, the story of BitCon, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I am the ferryman. In the shadows of the afterlife, the Ferryman of Souls guides America's most influential spirits to their eternal rest. Where are you taking me? Are you death? This road is not on any map. How much for a ticket? All I ask for in payment is a tale. I don't know who got to Kennedy first. And the devastation those first bombs caused. I've never been to hell, but I know intimately the hymns of the damned. Binge this season of The Passage now. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Listen to the highly anticipated 100th episode of Tank and Jay Valentine's R&B Money Podcast with artist Chris Brown. Even working with you from Carrie Hilson, Adonis. Mm-hmm. Back in the day, I was 15, 14 doing that album. So like I said, I was in school. Like, yeah. okay, this is how you do it. This is how you make a song. There's a verse, a pre-chorus, and then a hook. I didn't know none of that. You learned I, that over a summer, bro. That's what I, it felt like. That's what it felt like. Listen to R&B Money on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts.